I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. On this episode, we're going back to school for a conversation about student housing. None of us, nor any university, nor any business, ever contemplated a pandemic and a reaction. While it's certainly not business as usual, higher education is underway again. That's Bill Bayless, a dyed-in-the-wool mountaineer out of West Virginia University who co-founded American Campus Communities in 1993 and built it into the nation's largest developer, owner, and manager of student housing. Bill joins us from the company's headquarters in Austin, Texas. It was more, okay, what's happening for this current academic year? Are there going to be heads on beds? And fortunately, we're seeing really good collections and good occupancies across the board. And that's Jacqueline Fitz, an Aggie out of Texas A&M, who is now one of CBRE's leaders in this sector. Jacqueline joins us from her home office down the road in Dallas. Today's assignment, student housing. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. And this week we're talking about one of the most important issues in America, which is education, specifically student housing. And how are universities faring during this troubled times, and how is it looking going forward? And to join us, we have two of the leading experts in the industry. Number one, we are joined by Bill Bayless, the CEO of American Campus Communities, also known as ACC to some, not the football, but ACC American Campus Communities. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Spencer. Great to be here. Great to have you, Bill. And we are also joined by Jacqueline Fitz, our own CBRE expert in student housing and executive vice president, focusing on the space. Jacqueline, welcome. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks for having us. I will delighted to have you. And as I mentioned in the open, there is no more important topic in America today than education, universities, and housing. But before we go into the specifics of the space, Bill, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us who you are and what you do. As you mentioned, we are the nation's largest developer, owner, and manager of student housing. Uh, we really have two segments to our business. Uh, we privately own college housing uh, off campus, immediately across the street from colleges and universities. And we also have a very unique program that we call ACE, American Campus Equity, where we also privately own on-campus student housing with universities outsourcing the development, ownership, and management of their on-campus facilities. So we're both on and off campus. And uh, overall, we house uh, 135,000 students at 93 campuses across America. Wow, that's a, that's a huge portfolio, Bill. And I didn't realize you had both on and off campus, and we'll dig into that in just a moment. Jacqueline, uh, first of all, you lead our student housing investment practice, and you've worked with Bill for quite some time. Walk us through how you got to meet Bill and what you guys do together. I met Bill, oh gosh. 2010. It's been a long time, um, but we've known each other for a while. I started out in the business um, working with them primarily on dispositions as they were transitioning their portfolio to be more pedestrian. And since then, we've just worked on a ton of different things together, whether it be recapitalizations or dispositions um, or acquisitions. But as of late, we see each other more at golf tournaments once a year and industry events, but we have not been doing acquisitions together as of late. So, Bill, let's now get into how things are going. Uh, COVID-19 has changed everything. So, Bill, in your own words, how's it going? How has COVID changed things for you? You know, COVID obviously changed everything for everybody. And when you look at when COVID uh, first hit back in March, we were in the midst of the, the prior academic year. None of us, nor any university nor any business, ever contemplated a pandemic and a reaction uh, to a pandemic like was about to take place. 
And so for colleges and universities that were in full session, uh, everything was fully occupied, obviously operationally, they were not prepared to implement what would become the social distancing norms and all the CDC practices. And so when you go back to March, there was really a, a, a panic and a sense of urgency for the universities of, you know, let's get students out of the classroom, let's go ahead and switch 100% to online, and no one was really prepared for that. And, and I got to tell you, over the last six months, the, 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 the university presidents across America and their staffs and their teams just deserve a huge shout out for the transformation that they have led on their campuses to where now as we are beginning a new academic year, from our perspective, it's going fantastic. Uh, these universities have created incredible flexibility to adopt the CDC standards, to accomplish social distancing. They have basically all, regardless of whether a university says we're in person or we're online, the reality is they're all implementing the same model. They have all put infrastructure in place to have the flexibility to be online when they need to be, to be in person when they can be, and when they are in person, to fully accomplish the CDC guidelines of social distancing. And so, while it's certainly not business as usual, higher education is underway again. Students are achieving uh, their, their educational objectives and goals, and for the most part, they are back in their college towns while they're in that environment, whether online or in person. And Jacqueline, obviously COVID has infected our practice from a capital markets sense as well. Tell us about that. From the standpoint of capital markets, there was a thought that majority of investors wanted to see heads on beds for the 2020-2021 academic year before investments started taking place again. Additionally, we really saw the lenders very much focused on that heads and beds and collections. Um, fortunately, and um, Bill can talk more about this, we saw amazing collection data um, in March, April, May, um, through the summer, where even though those students were for the most part moved back home, um, they were still honoring their leases and paying their rent. Um, so really it was more, okay, what's happening for this current academic year? Are there going to be heads on beds? And fortunately, we're seeing really good collections and good occupancies across the board. The transaction market is now back in play, if you will, because of that. Um, so we closed our first transaction of the academic year last Friday, which was um, a nice uh, little thing to do after a big break. So the capital markets are opening, fortunately, and that's something I would say was not the case from March through August, basically. How has pricing changed today versus pre-COVID? So there's been so few transactions that there's not a lot of data points to really point to to know for sure. But basically, I, I think that we're not going to see a ton of movement for a few reasons. One, debt is cheaper than it's ever been. So that's obviously helping pricing substantially. Um, additionally, unlike some other product types um, out there where you're seeing er erosion in overall income and or revenue, we're not seeing that um, for the student housing space. So I think that um, there could be a potential for pricing to hold steady um, just because the fundamentals have remained strong for the sector overall um, despite COVID. But this brings up another question of traditional multifamily versus student housing. What's the difference? So for the benefit of our listeners, Bill, perhaps you can walk us through the difference between student housing and traditional multifamily and then talk about on-campus versus off. Sure. When you look at the products that are being developed off-campus, 
in many cases, they do resemble multifamily communities. And from the exterior, in many cases, you would think it, it could be multifamily. However, when you get into the actual how you design student housing, of course, it's all about creating privacy, access to technology, and most important, affordability. Take a, uh, a city like Austin, where a one-bedroom multifamily apartment um, is in the area between $1,500 and $2,000 a month. And it's very expensive to get that privacy as a student in a multifamily property. By contrast, when you look at how a student apartment is designed, the main unit type you'll hear about is a four-bedroom, four-bath unit. And in 1,250 to 1,400 square feet, you will provide each one of those students in a traditional apartment-type floor plan their own private bedroom, their own private bathroom, with a large living room kitchen area that they share that common apartment facility. When you look at multi-family rents versus student housing, you look at the student housing apartment and say, wow, student housing really gets a significant premium per square foot to multi-family. But when you break down and we lease that apartment on an individual bed basis, so there's four leases for each one of those accommodations within that apartment complex, and when you take that total rent and you divide it by the four students, you get that price point down to where now the student individually is only paying $700 to $900 per month. And so it creates affordability for the student in terms of being able to lease by the bed. Uh, also in student housing, it's a little bit unique, is the industry does have parental guarantees. And that in many cases, students are not paying their own, uh, the, the, their own rent. But mom and dad, especially at the undergraduate level, mom and dad are the real credit behind the lease and are still paying. And so mom and dad co-sign those leases as guarantors. And so the off-campus business is very much a specialized niche on what we would consider traditional multifamily. Now, when you move into the on-campus products, it's a significant differentiation in that the first building boom that took place on colleges was back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. In response to the baby boomers, many of us, like me, lived in those old traditional residence halls with community bathrooms where you shared the floor bath with 40 other people, uh, the same sinks, the same toilets, the same uh, showers in a COVID environment, and those products still exist. That's not ideal. Um, and so when you look at what we're developing today on campus is a modern version of the living and learning residence halls on campus. While they still may have a shared bedroom, it's a very well-designed shared bedroom with a privacy wall. Technology in student housing, candidly, is much better than in multifamily. And that because even before COVID, students are the power users of, of, of broadband and the streaming. And so we've always incorporated great technology into those products. And in higher education, it's more important than anywhere. So they can always use all of their products first for educational and social purposes. There will be classrooms, there will be academic advising centers, and in many cases, we're building honor colleges of a residential nature on these campuses that are fully immersed into the educational experience. Something I want to make sure to highlight, um, kind of adding on from what Bill said, is what they're building, um, they being ACC and other P3 developers on campus is very modern in comparison to some of that older product with the bathrooms down the hall. And why that's important now more than ever is because of social distancing. In some instances, um, those functionally obsolete dorms that have the bathrooms down the hall don't 
follow CDC regulations. And so those have had to been taken offline um, for COVID. So I think that it's important to note that what ACC and others are building on campus is modern and does work in this COVID environment because there are going to continue to need to be the functionally obsolete on-campus housing um, taken offline, if you will, and replaced with new modern housing that kind of functions in this um, post-COVID world. To put that in context, what, what Jacqueline is saying there, and when you look at when COVID hit and the universities in these older residence halls with those community baths were fully occupied, that's what really drove the panic. And oh my goodness, we have no ability to create the separation. One of the reasons you saw student housing have such strong rent collections through COVID, we were at 93.7% rent collections in April, May, and June, is that our products, you know, a typical, that four bedroom apartment, that's four students in a household. They have their own kitchen facilities. They can cook, they can quarantine, they can isolate, they can self-sanitize. There was no panic whatsoever. And we actually, when the universities, this was very unique, when the universities in March and April panicked and told students to leave in the on-campus residence halls of that older quality, we actually, in the middle of an academic year, picked up a thousand new residents and contracts, which never happens that time of year. And so the modernization of student housing really helped the university. And that was part of the reason they were able to reopen this fall. They realized we have all of this great modern product. In many cases, it was off campus, but that they could rely upon to bring students back. At the 68 markets that were located, 40% of the university's on-campus products continue to be those older community bath residence halls. And when you look at what is the real opportunities for companies like American Campus post-COVID, it is to continue and to modernize that housing. And so there, there is likely going to be a second building boom on campus post-COVID as universities dealt with the weaknesses of those products, not just in being able to implement CDC guidelines, but also from a consumer sentiment and saying, hmm, I really don't want to share that community bath anymore. Well, I think there's a lot of ways to cut and paste or to, to divide the universities who are doing it right, those who are maybe behind the curve, but I know there's sometimes softer factors that influence the value of student housing. One of them happens to be the existence of college football. And so, Jacqueline, uh, I saw some statistics last year that schools that have big-time college football have more valuable student housing than those that don't. Why is that? So we did research on the fact that cap rates typically are lower for those Power Five universities, the five kind of top um, football conferences. And basically, there are a lot of reasons why um, enrollments are stronger at those universities. Typically, when a university um, does win a championship, we typically see um, an uptick in enrollment, which is interesting. So Alabama had many, many years of success on the football field. Um, They still are successful. Let's not downplay it. But um, they haven't won as of late. But their enrollment went through the roof during those years of um, of success. And we've also seen that at Clemson recently. So when we see strong fundamentals when it relates to supply demand at those universities, then of course the investors look at those strong fundamentals and um, and are, are attracted to those fundamentals. So then we start to see pricing come down and cap rates 
um, compress in those markets. But the football drives the students and the excitement to want to be at that university, which then drives the investors there. And the other thing to mention, and I know this is a long-winded answer, is that we are really seeing a very large interest from international investors in the student housing sector. So north of 35% of our total transaction volume in 2019 was via international investment. And so it's good for um, these universities that are very successful in football because they're getting international recognition. If you're an investor in Asia, you don't necessarily know Clemson very well. Um, And now you do because they're getting international recognition via football. When you think about student housing around the world, America is very unique. When you look at the UK and Australia and other strong student housing markets, In many cases, their main student housing um, markets are driven by international students. And many of their domestic students still tend to commute and go close to home. And America is unique in that students leave and go away to college. And as Jacqueline said, make no mistake, college football is free advertising for your enrollment. When I grew up, it was the, the year of Florida State, Miami, and Notre Dame. And, you know, you would, you'd watch on TV. And I, I did go to West Virginia because I could only afford in-state tuition. But I wanted to go to Florida State because that's where I was seeing it every weekend. Well, this just in. I literally got a text 30 seconds ago that Big Ten football is now coming back. So <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And, 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 as, and, I, and I think also, you know, football is something we all love and rally around. So football is a big deal around here and good for you. And uh, by the way, your Mountaineers are already playing, so good luck to them. Thank you very much. We have high expectations. You bet. Remote learning. The big story in the office sector is work from home. The big story in universities is also work from quote-unquote home, because home could be your traditional home where you grew up, or it could be student housing. How is remote learning impacting your industry? Start with you, Jacqueline. So what we've seen from, and there have been a couple of studies published by Simpson Scarborough that we've reflected on where they've um, gone and and, um, surveyed not only returning students, but freshman students. What we've seen overall, um, specifically from the study when it was initially published in April and May, was that the remote learning program was universally panned. The students hated it. They'd rather be on campus. They'd rather be learning in person. So um, while remote learning is a reality for us right now, I think that fortunately from a student housing perspective, many students are still living um, and residing in their college towns, which is really being reflected in the occupancy levels that ACC is seeing specifically for their sophomore and up housing versus their freshman housing. Let me bring up a a point that I think Bill made earlier regarding international students. Clearly, we're not going to see international students coming back at the levels that they were pre-COVID, at least for a year. And the question is, how much does that impact not only student housing, but universities that seem so stretched today from a financial point of view? Yeah, from a student housing perspective, it has not had a material adverse impact. Uh, When you look across our portfolio, Year to year, we estimate that we have 3 to 4% of our tenant base, resident base, that is international students. So it is very small as compared to, as I mentioned, other countries. Now, for universities, as you mentioned, it's a much bigger issue. And that from an economic perspective, typically international enrollment, uh, that international student is paying a multiple 
of what a domestic in-state student would pay. And so it is not unusual for the revenue stream from that international student to be two to three times a domestic student. Now, this actually in most cases ends up being a plus for the student housing industry. And that what universities have historically done when they have seen a drop in international enrollment is they then admit a multiple of domestic students, two to three to make up for that income loss, which then from a housing demand can actually cause more. And so it's not as much of a risk to the student housing market as it is for the universities just to make up that revenue source. While we're talking about revenues with international students, revenues with domestic students, if you're a student listening to that, you're hearing the word cost and the rising cost of higher education, uh, which is a tremendous challenge, particularly for uh, middle class folks here in America. Bill, what do you think? When you look at student loan levels and the cost of education at the four-year publics, the data is very surprising as compared to what you hear in the headlines related to student debt. And the evolution of modern student housing has helped the affordability. One, when I mention the work that we do on campus, we're a professional real estate company. We have developed over $7.5 billion of product. It's our core competency in terms of design, construction, delivery. When we build on-campus student housing, we can deliver a higher quality product on a quicker timeline at 65 to 70 cents on the dollar than if a university had done it themselves because it's what we in the private sector do versus a governmental entity. And so not only are we modernizing housing, we're modernizing housing more cost effectively that enables the rents to be even lower. The other thing that we do is, you know, we, we have a program in our development philosophy we refer to as build for the masses, not the classes. And when you think about a multifamily company, you think about, you know, your premier multifamily developers, you think of some of them as, oh, they're a class A developer, they do the coastal high rises, great product. You may have another developer that does class B, and then you may have developers that focus on affordable housing only. How we approach student housing is we build all price points within the same community. So where we're at a university, take the University of Texas where you have 50,000 students, and there's been an enrollment cap at UT for decades. That, that 50,000 is constant. It's not growing. When we look at the 5,000 beds that we have here at the University of Texas and here in Austin, we have price points that range from $499 per bedroom all the way up to $2,000 per bedroom. But where students can live in the same great communities, regardless of their socioeconomics and where they come from, and that's part of the college experience. This is why online doesn't work. The biggest part of the college experience is bringing those students together in one facility where the kids that can only afford to pay $4.99 can live with the students that can afford to pay $2,000, and they all share the same lifestyle, the same amenities, and shared experiences. That's the diversity and the education outside of the classroom that you will never experience online. And that's why schools are back in session. And I got to tell you, we used to hear before COVID, man, we're worried online education may be the biggest threat to student housing long term. That's now dis disbanded completely. Everybody understands the classroom lecture is a small component of what higher education is all about. And so it's actually, we think, going to be a positive in terms of people seeing that remote learning can never replace 
the on-campus experience. Well, Bill, I, I just taped that not only for this show, but I'm sending that comment to my friends in the office sector because the people in the office sector are saying, well, maybe work from home is the alternative to working in the office. But based upon what you're saying, I think you are the biggest cheerleader, not just for student housing. I think that comment applies to office as well. But culture, I mean, you know, we, 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 we value our culture. And, you know, we, how can you build that rapport among employees and that sense of collaboration and team? If, you know, our American campus mantra is work hard, play hard can't play hard remotely. You know, how you get together as a group and go out after work and have a cup of coffee or a drink and socialize, and that's where the bonding and, and, and the unification of what we're all trying to do as an organization comes together. Well, I agree with that. It is very hard to have a drink or a meal with somebody over the phone or over the Zoom call. So let's talk now about changes that are happening right now on the ground with developments that are currently uh, underway. Uh, you're finishing a new phase of Curry Hall at USC and putting the finishing touches on Manzanita Square in San Francisco State. Tell us if you've made any changes to those projects because of COVID. Those two we actually weren't able to make changes to because they were completing construction as COVID hit. Now, as we look at the new products we're designing, you know, I, I told our board of directors, and having been a developer all my entire life, never have I ever looked at a set of plans and said, okay, how will this property perform during a pandemic? We will never again look at a set of plans without asking, how will this property perform in a pandemic? And so pr probably the biggest shift is where we develop on campus. I mentioned we, we still develop residence hall products. We were working a couple residence hall developments where we were developing modern communities, but they were going to still have the shared bathrooms. We've moved away from that, and now it's to the suite-style bathroom, never more than two to four people sharing. When we now look at designing amenities, we have an academic success center in every facility we build, even private off-campus. Now we look at all the programming and design of that in terms of CDC guidelines, in terms of measurements and, and social distancing. The other thing, we've done an exhaustive facilities analysis in terms of nanotechnologies and antimicrobial surfaces to where every, you know, we, we, we just announced a partnership. It's called Be Safe, Be Smart, Do Your Part, where we worked with RB, the makers of Lysol. And we went through all this facilities assessment on how we can change design, how we can change surfaces, then how we can provide self-sanitization. And while it's essential in the world of COVID, it's also things that can help during every flu season. And so I don't think we and other residential developers will ever approach how we design products and think about products without all the lessons we've learned. In COVID. One more question on that front, talking about micro-touch technology, sensors, and all these devices. I'm going to talk about something a little bit simpler. Functional windows. Functional doors at the front, revolving versus open doors. Is there a point where we're going to see a conflict between wellness and sustainability? Because many of these things, such as open windows, are a demerit if you want to get Energy Star rated or you want to get LEED Gold certified. Uh, do you see any conflict there? Yeah, I mean, there, there definitely is the balancing. There, there, there definitely is the balancing. And we, you know, the front door to a building being automatic versus a hand pull, nothing in a world of COVID is a single differentiation you can make than that automation. 
And so certainly when you get into air quality within a unit and the ability, now sustainability though, depends geographically where you, where you are. And that an operable window in a temperate climate in the Northwest to where you don't have to run the air conditioning because of that open window airflow, that's actually a positive from a sustainability. So it does, versus here in Texas, you know, th th those are the things that you, you, you have to balance between, you always balance between, but you know, industry is always innovative. Industry always does a great job in terms of looking at consumer sentiment and what's important to the consumer from a value and a sustainability and an environmental perspective covered with life safety. And you will see products and thought processes emerge, I am sure. You know, one of the most simple things we went to, I can't tell you how many door foot pulls we have installed to where you can now open the door with your toe of your foot versus having to touch a handle. So there's all kind of creative balances that will be found as those type of issues we juggle with and prioritize. Well, Bill and Jacqueline, we talk a lot about what's happening today as a result of the COVID crisis. I'd like to expand the lens a bit, talk about the future. What does the future of student housing look like, say, five years from now? Bill, what do you think? Well, I think from an investment perspective, it's really going to look like what it did pre-COVID. And it, the reason the international and the global community was rushing into student housing as an investment was the stability of cash flows. Student housing has always been known as a defensive investment with plus growth potential. Uh, when you look at American Campus's 15-year history as a public company, each and every year we've had same-store growth in rental rate, rental revenue, and same-store NOI. And that stability of cash flow was a safe haven for investors in real estate. And while the industry has shown certainly that it's not completely pandemic proof and there were some short-term impacts, we believe that the long-term of student housing will return to the investment thesis, especially as we look at heading into perhaps a macro environment where you do see some slowdown and, and potential recessions in the future. We think student housing will continue and return to being that safe haven investment. Jacqueline, uh, is that the uh, thesis that we're striving for in the capital markets? We've always said that student housing is recession resilient. So we need to think about kind of what happens when unemployment goes up, which is what we've seen right now. And in these times, we've seen more and more students um, and or just um, people seek post-secondary education. And if you even look right now at who is losing their job or who has lost their job during the pandemic, the majority are people that do not have college degrees. So really, we see um, a movement to more college degrees during times of uncertainty. I think we kind of, during this COVID cycle, hit a, a weird time frame where a lot of people had already applied for schools. And so there wasn't a huge uptick in, in enrollment for this current academic year. But I think for next year, we'll certainly see even more students looking to go back that have lost their jobs or do want the more economic certainty of a college degree and what that offers for them for their potential earnings going forward. We're getting to the end of our time here. I would uh, just end where we began, which is we are all dealing with the COVID crisis. We all have our eyes on universities and students. Uh, Bill, what's your final thoughts you'd like to share with the world and specifically with your students and your, and your units? Yeah, and certainly the return to campus is something that we should all celebrate. And, you know, we just released our numbers yesterday in terms of where our lease has ended up in process. We're at 90.3% versus 97.4% last year. We're only down 700 basis points. 
And when you look further to what Jacqueline was saying, among sophomores and upperclassmen, those products that house the upperclassmen are at 92%. They're only down about 5%. You know, 95% of students said, we're coming back to our colleges. There is a little more sensitivity in those first-year students. They, I, and I got a feel for those first-year students coming in. They graduated high school among COVID, and they had the disruption of their high school graduations. Now they're starting their college careers among COVID, and so there is a little more apprehension there, and, and, and we see those products right at about 80%. But the bottom line is higher education and colleges play such a role, and I'm sure all of us can tell our stories and how it impacted our lives and our careers and the friendships and the experiences that we had. And so to see it continuing, uh, despite this COVID pandemic, it's brought out the best in universities, the best in students, and I think in the best in all the companies that are here to serve them. And so we're glad to be back. We're thankful to be back. We want to make sure we do everything we can to keep everybody safe and healthy. Uh, but just like everything else this country has faced, we collaborate, we face it together, we innovate, and we find a way to move forward. I think that the future is really bright as it relates to um, beyond the 2020-21 academic year. So if you think about the fact that we're going to see the freshmen that have taken a gap year or stayed home come back to campus, the international students that were unable to get to the U.S. Um, come back to the U.S. next fall, I think that we're really going to see um, an amazing uptick in the overall demand next year, um, which is really going to drive, um, I believe, good rent growth, good occupancies, and also just strong investment potential for the sector. So I'm excited for the future beyond this academic year and, and the demand that we'll see from students going forward. Well, on behalf of the weekly take, I am delighted to have thanked our guests, Jacqueline Fitz, our own EVP, uh, expert in student housing. Jacqueline, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Spencer. And Bill Bayless, uh, wow, what a great show, Bill. And you were so enthusiastic about the space and so many other things. Delighted to have had you on the show, CEO of American Campus Communities. Thank you, Spencer. Information, go to CBRE backslash the weekly take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. <laughs>